get ready. Every dinosaur statue you've ever seen or a skeleton is made from uh, ground up chicken bones from China. To question everything. Yeah, she she told me that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. What do you believe? As I was looking around, it looked like an extraterrestrial starship. I mean, it, it felt like it was a starship. And why do you believe it? I, I do, based on my belief in scripture, I do believe that there is some sort of eternal consequence, or you could even say eternal punishment. This is Unquestionable with Calvin Smith. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Unquestionable. Today, we're taking a look at one of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament, the Noah's Flood narrative. To quote the multi-million dollar misinformation campaign known as Answers in Genesis, ran by world-renowned charlatan and con artist Ken Ham, the flood of Noah's day, 2348 BCE, roughly 4,500 years ago, was a year-long global catastrophe that destroyed the pre-flood world, reshaped the continents, buried billions of creatures, and laid down the rock layers. It was God's judgment on man's wickedness and only eight righteous people and representatives of every kind of land animal were spared aboard the ark. Fun fact, guess what the executive director of Answer in Genesis Canada's name is? Calvin Smith. <laughs> I know, funny, right? Now, if you're new to this whole global flood thing, it's pretty easy to assume that the story is more than likely completely fabricated nonsense copied from the hundreds of flood myths found worldwide that are, in some cases, literally thousands of years older than the biblical story of Noah and the Ark. One of the earliest stories more than likely comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh, written around the 12th century BCE on 12 stone tablets. Now, there are some uncanny similarities in themes between Gilgamesh and Noah's Ark, but we're not going to open that can of worms in this podcast. Maybe another time I can talk specifically about flood myths around the world and their similarities and why they're so similar. But for now, I encourage everyone to take a gander at the Epic of Gilgamesh and let me know what you think of it. Now, the story of Noah's Ark and the supposed world-encompassing flood starts in the book of Genesis, just a few pages into the already confusing and disgusting storyline thus far. So in short, Noah a prophet and the so-called only blameless person living on earth, was instructed by God to build a boat for the impending flood. This flood was intended to kill every living thing on the planet, including all those evil puppies, babies, and koala bears. You know, because they're super evil and broken and deserving of drowning or whatever. Anyways, then God makes rainbows to remind himself, since he's apparently forgetful, to not flood the entire earth once again and kill everything. How thoughtful. The story of Noah's Ark and the impending worldwide flood starts in Genesis 6-9 and ends at Genesis 9-17. The beginning of the story attempts to detail the schematics of the Ark during the story. The Ark, according to God, had to be made of gopher wood. And for those about to Google what gopher wood is, good luck. Because we currently have no idea what the Hebrew context of the original word means. Some scholars think that the origin of the word leads back to cypress for the cypress tree, 
but it requires quite a bit of mental gymnastics and ad hoc rationalization to reach even that conclusion. But interestingly enough, the common wood that was used at the time that Noah's Ark would have been started was teak wood. Teak was often used in ancient Mesopotamia for shipbuilding for its long-term durability, strength, stiffness, and lack of cracks and splits in the wood upon cutting and carving. This made teak the ideal wood for making boats at that time. So the fact that biblical scholars reached the conclusion of gopher wood only after jumping through hoops to get there seems a bit fishy to me. Pun intended. But why did the God of the Bible take it upon himself to tell Noah to use a type of wood that doesn't exist? Why didn't God just say use cypress or teak wood and eliminate even the possibility for confusion? I mean, after all, 1 Corinthians 14.33 does state that God isn't the author of confusion, but this seems to be causing quite a bit of confusion to this day. Now, Noah's giant floating OSHA violation was supposed to measure 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall which is 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet for those asking Google right now. The God of the Bible required that the Ark have three floors, and the main floor must have a large door on the side and a one cubit squared window at the top. For comparison, the largest boat anywhere close to the supposed time of Noah and the Ark is the Khufu ship from about 2500 BCE in Egypt's fourth dynasty. It was the largest boat of its time, yet the Khufu ship measures in at only 43 meters long and 5.9 meters wide. This ship comes nowhere close to the 137 meter long Ark. Not to mention as well that it was only Noah and his family which built the Ark in only about 80 years based on the timeline given in the Bible. Which is impossible to do for the reasons of making the scaffolding, building materials, time for the wood to cure being cut, and it wouldn't be possible to do in the time frame of only 80 years. So Noah had no experience with boat construction, or at least as far as we know. The Bible leads no indications as to Noah having knowledge or education on everything from calculus to the mechanics of the ark itself. I mean, how did Noah solve the differential equations for bending moment, torque, and just sheer stress on the boat without prior knowledge? I personally would have never thought to think of these things if a god came to me asking me to build a boat out of nowhere. These are things that have to be accounted for when constructing a half-decent watercraft, let alone one that's supposed to withstand a global flood. Besides the Ark itself, there are also more than a few complications with a worldwide flood. Now, let me clarify that there is a good amount of evidence to suggest a localized flood or multiple localized floods of the regions that may have occurred sometime in the not-so-distant past, but to put it plain and simple, there just isn't enough water on Earth to encapsulate all land. 813,875,076 miles cubed of rain would have to be responsible for a flood which covered the entire Earth from the Grand Canyon to Mount Everest. The obvious problem with that is all the water on Earth adds up to about 332,500,000 miles cubed. So in order for the biblical flood to have happened the way it says it did in the Bible, the amount of water on the planet would have had to have multiplied by 250% almost overnight and disappear at the same speed after the rain was said and done. Needless to say, this is unreasonable and frankly impossible to say the least. So with the complications with the amount of water needed to cover the entire earth in water, as well as difficulties with building a boat that size in the time frame given with the amount of available working hands, let's take a look at some of the problems with the whole point of the Ark to begin with, the animals on board. 
I think it goes without saying that any empty or unused space on the Ark was a precious resource. Even with the absence of boilers, crew cots, kitchens, and ballrooms like the RMS Titanic had, Noah and his family would have had to be feeling pretty cramped. So according to Genesis 7, God says to Noah to take pairs of seven of all kinds of unclean animals and pairs of two of all kinds of clean animals. Can someone please find a definition of kind for me that fits with the story? Because nobody seems to have a coherent definition. Anyways, we won't get into specifics of what an unclean and clean animal is, mostly because the Bible can't even come to an agreement with itself on what a clean and or unclean animal is. But you really can't even fathom the amount of care, food, and other necessities needed for tens of thousands of animals, most of which would kill you in an instant if you looked at it the wrong way, such as lions, tigers, bears, cougars, rhinos, hippos, and many, many more. Of course, the creationist hand wave for this is that all animals were vegetarian before the flood, and it wasn't until sometime after the fall of man that animals became carnivores. I think someone may want to let Answers in Genesis know that the fall of man came before the flood in Genesis 3, so animals would still be carnivores even in that case. So we've already talked about some of the feeding of the carnivores, but what about the herbivores? If they're supposed to be trapped on a boat for over a year, how was Noah able to feed the actual herbivores such as rabbits, koalas, cattle, and more if there was no fertilized land to grow food on? For animals like koalas, they can only eat eucalyptus leaves. You can't tell me that Noah had the technologies to preserve a year's worth of eucalyptus without it spoiling, or he was able to grow a tree in the middle of the ark. And this is only one example of an animal with very specific nutritional needs that would be nearly impossible to provide for on a boat for a year straight without any access to dry land in said year of time. Now you could argue that Noah had a greenhouse of some sort on the boat, but even that seems unreasonable for the fact that they are on a 500 foot long boat made completely out of wood that is sailing over Mount Kilimanjaro height waters. You truly can't imagine the amount of stress that this boat would be under. But get ready for the, God works in mysterious ways, replies. Have you ever seen a deer or an animal with hooves or even a dog with long nails try to walk on a hardwood floor? They slip around and seem pretty uncomfortable, right? This leads me into my point that the Ark was frankly too dangerous for most of these animals, if not all of them. Soft-hoofed animals, such as giraffes and some deers, would have quite a struggle standing and walking on the Ark, and would in fact cause intense discomfort, pain, and in some cases, death if continued. The Ark is starting to seem more like a torture chamber to me than a saving grace from God himself. Not to mention, who was maintaining these animals? Nail trimming, poop scooping, feeding, watering, bathing, brushing, and enriching would be impossible to do on this boat, let alone with only eight people on board. Let's not forget that there was only one window on the Ark, at the very top. This would without a doubt cause a fatal amount of methane gases or carbon dioxide to build up inside the Ark from all the animal waste, eventually killing everyone and everything on board the Ark before eventually finding its settling place. Imagine dying from fart inhalation. That would be the cause of death for most of the animals and people on board. Gross. So now let's move on to the reproduction part of this unlikely story. How did Noah prevent these animals from breeding with each other and accidentally reproducing while on their voyage on the ark? For example, the tailless tenrec of Madagascar can give birth 
to up to 32 babies in one single pregnancy, with an average litter of 15 to 20 after a gestation period of 50 to 60 days. One slip-up in separating these breeding pairs would mean that before the Ark was parked, Noah would actually have hundreds of tailless tenrex to care for. The next point being that some species of animals have very specific mating conditions to meet before being able to consider the other to be a suitable mate. Let's look at bowerbirds as an example. For male bowerbirds to attract females, they build a twig structure called a bower, which they decorate with bones, man-made objects, and stones. Once a potential mate arrives, the male stands in the court by the bower's exit and shows her the colorful objects he's collected. How would mating rituals like the bowerbirds be possible on Noah's Ark without the resources needed for a male to make a court? Now, of course, you could argue that the bowerbirds on board waited to mate until after the Ark ended its journey and all the animals somehow got back to their original habitat, but that would still pose a problem, as these birds never mate with the same partner more than once. So once the female lays its first set of eggs, the species would without a doubt die off shortly after. We all know how dangerous inbreeding animals can be. This somewhat leads me into my final point. Black rhinos, lemurs, rattlesnakes, etc. How did these animals get back to their original habitats, regardless of where the Ark may or may not have landed? Frankly, I still have yet to see or hear a decent, reasonable explanation for this problem. It just isn't possible. Cue the, with God all things are possible, excuses. Thank you everybody for listening to Unquestionable with Calvin Smith, and this is going to conclude today's episode on debunking the Noah's Ark fairy tale. Honestly, I could go on for so much longer about the improbabilities of the Noah's Ark narrative. I really have only scratched the surface of the amount of information available that contradicts this story, but we're going to leave it here for this time. Maybe depending on the reception of this podcast, I may make a part two, but I think you guys have heard enough of my ramblings for today. I'm going to link a couple things in the description of this episode with some additional information about the story of the Ark and the improbability of it ever existing, let alone the worldwide flood to go along with it. Make sure to share the show with your friends and take a look at my Redbubble shop to pick up some exclusive unquestionable merchandise such as coffee mugs, thermoses, clothing, stickers, and more. There are multiple ways that you can support me and the show, which are all compiled into my link tree in the description. Make sure to leave a review on Spotify and also answer the poll I have going over there too. The poll question being, did Noah's Ark exist? Thanks for listening to Unquestionable. I'll see you guys soon.